When you try to speak on grace, you often wonder, are you worthy? Can you talk about something that is so magnificent, so transforming, so unreal that it's something we all long for? Pure grace. How important is it? Well, the scripture says in Galatians chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul went so far as to say if anybody, if anybody preach anything other than this message, let that person be accursed. And I repeat myself, and remember that when the Apostle Paul repeated himself or God repeated himself, it wasn't because they had Alzheimer's. Okay? It's because they want you to get the point. So if you guys had flipped the next slide up there so they can see the scripture. Even if an angel talks about something else than the pure, unadulterated gospel of grace, the good news, the gospel, don't receive them. Let them go. I read a story several years ago by Dr. Richard Seltzer who kind of illustrates this idea. He said, I stood by the bed where a young woman lies. Her face is post-operative. Her mouth is twisted in palsy, kind of clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve. The one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself, he, the husband, and her with this twisted wry mouth that I have made, who gaze at it and at each other and touch each other so generously and so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes. I, the surgeon, say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze, for one is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works 
Brennan Manning reminded me after reading that passage. The image of a husband contorting his mouth and twisting his lips for an intimate kiss with his palsied wife. And I see the mangled body of the Son of God exposed to the world's derision. He's a blasphemer of God, a seducer of the people. Let him die in disgrace. His friends are scattered, his honor broken, his name is a laughingstock. He's been forsaken by his God, left absolutely alone. Drive him out of the holy city across the tracks where his kind belong. He's handled roughly, pushed around, scourged and spat upon, murdered and buried among his own. For our sake, he was made sinless, won a victim for sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every form of sin and its consequences and disease of every kind, every drug addiction and alcoholism, broken relationships, insecurity, hatred, lust, pride, envy, jealousy, cancer, bone disease, arthritis, and on and on were experienced and carried out by the Son of God. One from whom, as it were, we averted our gaze, despised for whom we had no regard. I mean God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not withholding, not holding anyone's faults against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus journeyed to the far reaches of loneliness. In his broken body, he's carried your sins and mine. Every separation and loss, every heartbroken, every wound of the spirit that refuses to close, all of those experiences, my friend, he, as he staggered and fell, was taking his lips and twisting them to accommodate and to identify with your twisted brokenness and your sin and your failure. Can you see him? Can you see God? There he is. Hard to look. But what on earth is God doing? If not taking his lips and twisting them so that he could kiss and let us know that his kiss still works to redeem our souls and to set us free from the brokenness and the heartache that grips humanity. I stagger when I think of what grace is and what grace costs. Free to me, not free to God. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to take my guilt away. I needed someone to take my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace.
Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. And you can recognize, my friend, right now, you and I, you and I are not dealing with someone who's selling us a trinket. We're not dealing with someone who's giving away an extra book. Not someone who's giving you the world book encyclopedia. But someone who's given you and I a deal that is so radical, so mind-blowing. I mean, all of your sins, name them. Well, we don't have time. All of your sins, all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins in a moment's time on the cross when Christ said, it's finished. Guess what he meant? He meant it's paid for and it's finished. And when you think, let your mind contemplate for just a moment, what that means. Can you say anything but amazing? Amazing grace. Now there's three truths that I want to point out to you today. What can I say? What is my response? What does this lead to when I truly understand the gospel of grace? What does that lead me to? Well, let me begin with something that's kind of simple. I think your outline has a place there for you to fill in some words. But when I understand the pure gospel of grace, first of all, it leads to a radical, unconventional, and highly personal decision to respond is to acknowledge that the other has taken the initiative has issued the invitation has made the overture and as I've already said remember not giving away some book of the month not selling you some special uh, place you can go spend three nights and two days or is it four nights and two days or five nights and one day, you know, over there in Myrtle Beach. Have you ever gone and listened to one of them talk for two hours so they could give you that? We're not talking about that kind of deal, but we're talking about someone that would take every bit of your brokenness and give you his holiness. There's a parable in the, the, in the book of Luke that talks about this very issue. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 it's a parable that sort of bothers us from time to time. You can read it on the screen, about eight verses there. But the parable of talents, you have these three servants that are called in to give an account of how they've used the gifts that they've been entrusted with. Remember, the first two used their talents boldly and resourcefully. But the third one, sort of like some of us, prudently wraps up the money and buries it, sort of typifies the Christian who sort of deposits 
their faith in some sort of a nice, safe little place where no one can see it, where it can be hidden away and they can cover it over and maybe even plant flowers on it in the spring so it blooms. But nobody really knows that there is what's been entrusted to them, this wonderful gift of grace. And then the master calls an account and says, what have you done? Why haven't you done something with this talent that I've given you? And if you read the story, you recognize that the unjust steward, hearing he was going to be fired, takes the master's accounts, doctors the books, switches everything around, and makes it look like his master's making lots of money. And then you and I are saying, Jesus praised the criminal. high accountant. He praised the criminal. And you get lost right there. Unless you recognize what Jesus is trying to get you and I to deal with. Jesus Christ at that point is not dealing with morality, but he's dealing with apathy. And you and I have heard the gospel message so many times we have hanging around our neck beautiful little necklaces of the crucifix. Maybe setting up in your office is a beautiful little picture of the crucifix. So sanitized, so beautiful, so apathetic. It misses the point of what God has done when he poured out his life into Jesus Christ and emptied himself of everything but love and died for Adam's helpless race. The songwriter said, "'Tis mercy, all mercy, immense mercy and free mercy, and oh my God, it found out me. Can it be? That, my friend, is the picture of a person who understands the call of the gospel. That, my friend, is a picture of someone who recognizes what is being offered. And it calls you and I. It leads us to a radical, unconventional, highly personal decision. Please understand me. I'm not opposed to folk coming forward and saying, I've made a decision to follow Jesus. But let me tell you something, my friend. At least within our church culture today, and I've been around a little while, not as long as some of you all, but I've been around a little while, to recognize that we sort of sanitized the whole process, made it so innocent, so harmless, so painless, so easy, we don't know what we're doing. Do you realize that you're being called by God who emptied himself, who poured out his love for you? Do you realize that's who's calling you? Do you realize that's what the gospel of grace is all about? Because we sanitize it, we can wrap it in a package and leave it in a little box, and it's beautiful, and we put it on the shelf, and we go out Monday and surf the web for, go out Tuesday, smack somebody because... Go out Wednesday and use this word, that word, and the other word. Why? Because we do not understand the gospel of grace and what it's calling us to. This unconventional, radical, highly personal decision that God is calling you and I today. Now, some of us, 
are really hoping that Jesus gets laryngitis and quits calling because we've heard that message and we like to keep it off in a container someplace and like to keep it sanitized and nice and so clean. But let me tell you something about grace. Grace is very messy because grace will cause you to open up your heart to God Open up your heart to yourself, and if you're not careful, your heart will bubble over around other people that you know as well. And it gets kind of messy, but that's what God does. He loves a mess. He loves it because that's what he takes and brings beauty out of. Will you respond today to his, to his invitation? Or highly radical unconventional personal decision where you begin to accept grace you can't will yourself to do it you can't make yourself do it it comes because God the Holy Spirit draws your heart in such a way that now your eyes have been opened somebody say why do you preach this kind of message because we don't hear it very often this message of grace me being raised in the church as I was. I wasn't conceived in the church, but I only missed it by a few hours, I'm convinced. <laughs> and I can remember being a little boy sitting on the floor while people sang on the platform, being reared in the church, listening to gospel preaching all my life, and I responded to the call as much as I knew. And then I turned 21 and responded to the call as much as I knew. And I turned 29 and responded to the call as much as I knew. And I turned 40 and responded to the call as much as I knew. And then I turned <coughs> 50 and I responded to the call as much as I knew. And I thank myself if God allows me to reach 60, then again, I will respond to the call as much as I would know then. Because it continually pulls on me is I understand what he's done, what he's given. I can't sit back, take my shoes off, and twiddle my thumbs. Why? You saw the images. How dare I give anything except everything I have and my best to the one who gave me the most? Jesus teaches us to count how few days we have and reveals to us that we're so caught up in that which is urgent that we've overlooked what is essential. Never sacrifice the ultimate on the altar of the immediate. Remember the call of the gospel of grace. Number two. Second, this understanding of the gospel of grace leads me to rest in his grace and not trust my resume. How do you cope with failure? Do you run to Jesus happy or do you run off and hide? Hebrews chapter 4, the scripture that I have associated with this point, 
tells us that we need some instruction here. See, I think we rely on our resume. Okay? I've done this, and I'm doing better here, and I'm making progress, and things are going well, and boy, life's okay. How about failure? Do you remember the story of the disciples after Christ was resurrected, and they'd all run off and hid and hid themselves, and had, you know, Peter, I mean, what did the guy do? Curse God, curse God, cur at least three times used words that I would be embarrassed to use. Stomped his foot, shook his fist, failed at the time when he was needed the most in our mind. But yet after the resurrection, there they're in a boat, fishing, not doing so well. Who is that on the shore? Well, I believe it's the master. What does Peter do? Oh, goodness, I got to go hide. No, he leaps out of the boat, runs to Jesus in the midst of his failure. That tells me something, my friend. He knew something about Jesus I don't know. So I ask you, how do you cope with your failure? Because the way you cope with your failure is an indicator as to whether you rely on your resume or trust in his grace. Grace tells us that we're accepted just as we are. We may not be the kind of people we want to be. We may be a long way from our goals. We have, may have more failures than achievement. We may not be wealthy or powerful or spiritual. We may not even be happy. But we're nonetheless accepted by God, held in his hands. That's the promise that he gives us with his grace. Can I talk to those of us who have lives that are grave disappointments to ourselves and to God? It requires enormous trust, reckless confidence to accept that the love of Christ knows no shadow, no alteration, no change, no turning whatsoever, regardless of how I live. Did you hear that? I trust his grace, not my resume. We have a high priest, one that's not out of touch with our reality. He's been through weaknesses and testing. He's experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him. Get the help that he's so ready to give. Take the mercy. Accept the help. How hard is it for you to ask for help? Hard. I can do this and by myself. No help wanted. Do you need a little help? No help wanted. I can handle this job all by myself. The spirit of independence, my friend, gets us in trouble because it leads us to rely on our resume, not trust the gospel of grace. You have to understand that all of us have shadows and skeletons in our background. But listen, there's something bigger in this world than we are. And that something bigger is full of grace, full of mercy, full of patience, full of ingenuity. The moment that the focus of your life shifts from your badness to his goodness, the question becomes not what have I done, but what can he do? 
and it releases me from remorse that can happen. Miracle of miracles, you can forgive yourself because you are forgiven. You can accept yourself because you've been accepted and you begin to start building up the very places you once tore down. There's grace to help in every time of trouble. And that grace is the secret to being able to forgive ourselves. Trust it. Trust it. Oh, I'm almost out of time. Maybe you heard the story several years ago in a large city out west where rumors spread that there was a certain Catholic lady who had visions of Jesus. The reports that she had visions of Jesus actually reached the archbishop. The archbishop was very interested in this, wanted to check out, was she really seeing Jesus or was she seeing some sort of apparition that she imagined was Jesus? And so his curiosity was piqued. Is it true, ma'am, that you have visions of Jesus? Asked the archbishop. Yes, the woman said simply. Well, the archbishop said, the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. The woman looked at the archbishop and said, sir, did I hear you right? You want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past? Exactly, the archbishop said. Please call me if anything happens. Ten days passes, and sure enough, the woman notifies her spiritual leader of the recent vision. Please come, she said, and within the hour, the archbishop arrived. He trusted eye-to-eye -eye contact. He said, you told me over the telephone that you actually had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, bishop, I asked Jesus to tell me the sins that you confessed at your last confession. The bishop leaned forward with anticipation. His eyes narrowed. What did Jesus say? She took his hand and gazed deep in his eyes. Bishop, she said, these are his exact words. I can't remember. Do you trust the gospel of grace? or your own personal resume. Oh, it takes courage, my friend, to cast yourself in the arms of God who will catch you. The essence of biblical trust is captured in the story of a house, two-story house that is caught on fire. The family, mother, father, several children, were on their way out when the smallest boy became terrified, tore away from his mother, ran back upstairs. Suddenly he appeared in a smoke-filled window, crying like crazy. His father outside shouted, Jump, son! Jump! I'll catch you! The boy cried, But daddy, daddy, I can't see you! I know! His father called, I know! but I can see you. Can you jump today and let yourself be caught in that gospel of grace and no longer trust your resume? Your resume is worthless. Oh, it may get you a job. 
but it won't help you in heaven. It won't get you nearer heaven. It won't get you nearer the throne. Nothing will get you nearer the throne, my friend, except to be embraced by the loving arms of a heavenly father who will never, ever, ever let you go. That's why we call it amazing grace. Number three, the third truth that I find in understanding the gospel of grace, it leads to wacky, madcap displays of gratitude. I mean some outlandish displays of gratitude. Once you under, I mean, here's the story in Mark 14. Jesus was at Bethany, a guest of Simon the leper. While he was eating dinner, a woman came up carrying a bottle of very expensive perfume. Opening the bottle, she poured it on his head, and the guests, you CPAs, became furious. I'm picking on Garrett because he's my friend. That's criminal, they said. That's sheer waste. That's madness. This perfume could have been sold for an annual salary and could have fed many poor people. They swelled up in anger, nearly bursting with indignation over her. Wow, what a story. What a story of someone who with impulsive gratitude does the unexpected does the wacky why because she understood what she'd been forgiven she understood in whose presence she was she realized this is the son of god nothing's too good for him nothing 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 and she pours it out not wasting anything every drop poured onto his head while those around said wow she is one weird whacked out person Wasting all of that stuff. Reminds me of a childhood story of O. Henry. You remember the story of the gift of the Magi? One of my favorite. Where the young wife has only a dollar eighty-seven, I believe, to buy her husband a gift. Christmas is the next day. And impulsively she decides to sell her long thick hair to buy him a chain for his treasured gold watch. Of course, at the same moment, he's selling the watch to buy a present for her, combs for her beautiful hair. And the next day, as they exchange gifts, they realize the impulsive nature, the spontaneous nature that love often will reveal itself in. When was the last time you did something just outlandish because you were grateful? Your heart was filled with gratitude. You realized you'd been blessed. You didn't stop to count. Because if you stop to count, it doesn't count. Did you get that? that that's probably worth writing down. If you stop to count, it doesn't count. I mean, can you imagine my wife knowing that I was counting. Now, did I call her today five times? Ah, I called her five times. Therefore, tonight, this is going to happen. Yeah, really. Especially if she knew I was counting how many times I called her to find out if that was going to work or not. Please, love doesn't work that way. Love says, let me text her, tell her I love her. 
boom. Oh, John Mark, I'm not spontaneous. Well, get over it. Get some. Okay? I'm not impulsive. Tough. Get you a little bit of it. It won't hurt. It'll help your life. It'll get rid of your migraine headaches in a heartbeat. They'll be gone. Your back will quit hurting. And it's amazing how it'll take care of itself. Why? You're giving, 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 giving. Just because. Why? I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Displays of gratitude to an almighty God because of why? How much he loved us. And he's given his life for you and I. An impulsive, lovely gesture of gratitude. In the human mind, it was foolish, a wasteful thing to do. Yet Jesus was so deeply moved, he wanted the tale of this woman's recklessness to be told and retold over and over and over again. Jesus was telling you and I, there's a real place for the impulsive, for the spontaneous, for the lavish, for the impractical, for the heroic, for the extraordinary, for the unrestrained, for the incalculable bursts of generosity that cry out. It's right to give. It's good to give praise and glory and honor and gratitude because of the deposit of grace that he's placed within my heart and in my life. Unconventional decision. Don't rely on your resume. Give a little spontaneity and impulsivity so you can truly have gratitude. And the take-home truth today, the take-home point that I don't want you to ever forget is that God twisted his lips in love to familiarize and identify himself with my sinfulness and does not judge me by my grungy good deeds, but by his love that is his gift to me. Did you catch that? On Calvary, what was he doing? Twisting his lips in love to familiarize and identify himself with my sinfulness. And he doesn't judge me by my grungy good deeds. That's as good as they get grungy. But by his love, that's how he judges me. Oh, that's my boy. I love him. He's all right. In my mind, when I understand God's grace at the end of the time, I don't know how it's going to work out, but in my brain, it's like this. Here I am being brought before God, and whoever does it, I've, stories say Peter does it. I don't know who does it. It may be Jeff for all I know. God, here's John Mark. And there I am looking at God, and God looks at me, and God says, that's just how I've always envisioned him. He's perfect. Come on. Wow. That's not bad. That's exactly the way I always thought he was. Why? He sees me in love. My wife was looking at a little baby a while ago, one of the twins. What do you think? You sit there and look at that little baby. Can that baby make a bad picture? Hello? Can that baby pray a bad prayer? 
Are you all awake still? The lunch is coming, I know. Of course not. Why? Oh, look at the baby. Beautiful, perfect, lovable baby. That's how God sees me. Mark, that's how God sees you. Rachel, that's how God sees you. Owen, that's how God sees you. That's how God sees you today. Why? You're his child. He's deposited grace in you. And he sees you in love. That's how he judges you. Father, it's so hard to take this message and express it from our hearts in a way that's understood. But, oh God, this is the message we need to hear. That you love us. We can trust your grace. We can rest in your grace. You've called us. We've responded. A deep personal decision, unconventional to this world. We leave everything there is to follow hard after you because we know that you've given us everything that you have. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for taking the cross and allowing yourself to become my sin and freeing me from it forever. In Jesus Christ's name, I offer this prayer. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless.